Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Today, First Pres Executive Director Chris Pan takes a close look at who was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how much we have in common with all of them. Good morning. Uh, I'm Chris Pan. I am on staff here at First Pres as the Executive Director. And we are in week 61 in our Hope Restored sermon series. Uh, we're going verse by verse through the entire Gospel of Mark. And we're looking at how Jesus restores hope to a world in need. Our passage today is Judas' betrayal of Jesus and Jesus' arrest. And our sermon title today is, I Was There. To put our passage today in context, here's a quick review of where we've been. Our passage occurs late on Thursday night, the night before Jesus is crucified on Good Friday. And earlier that evening, Jesus and his disciples have celebrated a Passover meal together. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper or communion with the breaking of bread and wine. And Jesus reveals that someone will betray him. And he tells Peter and the disciples that they will all desert him. And the disciples vehemently deny that they won't desert Jesus. They won't deny Jesus. Jesus then goes to the Gethsemane where he prays his soul in anguish. Remove this cup from me but not my will, thy will be done. And that brings us to our passage today, when Judas shows up with an armed crowd to arrest Jesus. As we go through our passage today and our message, ask yourself these two questions. What is God saying to me? What does he want me to do about it? What is God saying to me? What does he want me to do about it? Will you please join me in prayer? God, what are you saying to us? What do you want us to do about it? May you speak clearly to us now. We invite your Holy Spirit to transform us. We praise you for your great love for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ and all God's children say, Amen. If you are able, will you please stand as we read through our passage today, Mark 14, verses 42 through 52. We stand to show respect to the living word of God that has the power to transform us. Mark 14, 42 to 52. Jesus says to his disciples, Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This is an action-packed and heartbreaking passage Judas' betrayal of Jesus with a kiss, Jesus' arrest, 
a man's ear being sliced off, all of the disciples running away and abandoning Jesus. And among all that action, there is one question that stands out. And that question is, what is up with the naked guy? (laughs) Some naked guy running away from the scene. Who is he? What is he doing there? Why is he in the Bible? You know, we're not afraid to tackle the challenging questions here at First Prez. And so rest assured, we will get around by the end of this sermon to talking about the naked guy. But before we get there, let's look at the actions of some of the other people in the passage. Judas and the disciple with the sword. What do their actions tell us about us as disciples? Their actions as disciples, what does it tell us about us? What does it tell us about God? I want to look at the actions of a few different people, and we'll start with Judas. Is there anyone here named Judas? We have lots of Peters and Matthews and Marks and Marys. Why is no one named Judas? Obviously, it's because Judas is the ultimate bad guy. 2,000 years later, and Judas's name, just his name, is still a synonym for treachery and betrayal. In Dante's Inferno, the famous 14th century epic poem, Dante assigns Judas to the ninth and deepest, worst circle of hell, where Satan himself resides, the circle of treachery. In verse 45, it says this, So when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. If you've ever wondered where the phrase kiss of death comes from, it's right here. Kiss of death is derived from Judas's kiss to Jesus. The word for kiss in verse 45, when Judas actually greets Jesus, isn't the same word as in verse 44. In verse 44, the kiss is just a plain kiss, the customary greeting that one would give another at that time. In verse 45, the actual kiss that Judas gives Jesus is described as the intense kiss of a dear friend, the kiss to a loved one. That's the kiss of death. Judas betrays Jesus not just with a customary kiss, but with a kiss that you would give an intimate loved one. But isn't that the nature of betrayal? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever felt the pain of betrayal? If you have, you know that betrayal is always an inside job. An outsider can hurt you, but it's only betrayal when it's by an insider, someone close to you, someone you trust, someone you love. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. When Jesus miraculously provided food for the 5,000 Judas was one of the twelve who handed out that food to the crowd. Judas was there when Jesus healed the leper, when he healed the blind man. He was there when Jesus walked on water and restored the dead girl to life. Judas was one of the twelve that Jesus sent from village to village, driving out demons and healing the sick. There was a popular Christian hymn in the 14th century called, O You Poor Judas. And here are the lyrics. O poor Judas, what have you done? that you betrayed your master. That's why you have to suffer in hell. You have to be Lucifer's journeyman forever. Christ, have mercy. Judas, the bad guy. Judas, who we blame for his betrayal of Jesus, for sending Jesus to the cross. And aren't we glad that we are not a treacherous betrayer like Judas? Aren't we glad that Judas is consigned to the worst part of hell to suffer for what he did to Jesus? Christ, have mercy on Judas. I'm going to tip my hand here because I have a lot of compassion for Judas. 
I know it's weird, but bear with me. Because as we continue to examine the other people in our passage today, I realize that they are not that different from Judas. And then I realize that I am not that different from Judas. The second person in our passage today, the disciple with the sword. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and the armed crowd grabs Jesus. In verse 47, But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Mark doesn't name the disciple with the sword. He's wonderfully anonymous. It's just one of those who stood near cut off the ear of the slave. And Mark doesn't name the disciple because he might be trying to protect him. The Gospel of Mark was the earliest Gospel account written. Even though the book of Mark shows up second in your New Testament after the book of Matthew, it's actually first chronologically. It's the first one written. Mark writes it maybe in AD 60, or less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the author Mark is being careful to not name this disciple with a sword. The author John, on the other hand, he's got no problems identifying our swordsman. The Gospel of John is written 40 years after the Gospel of Mark in AD 100. And by then, this sword-wielding disciple has already been martyred. So John writes in the Gospel of John 18.10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. I think of John as every teacher's favorite student. And the teacher comes in and asks, what happened here? And Mark's like, well, one of these guys uh, cut off this dude's ear. And John says, it was Peter. (laughs) Simon Peter is his full name. Peter. It was the right ear, not the left ear. The guy's name is Malchus, M-A-L-C-H-U-S. Thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks a lot. But we all already knew who the disciple with the sword was, don't we? Who else could it be? Peter, our lovable hothead, jumping out of the boat to walk on water. Peter, rebuking Jesus. You don't need to die. Peter, swearing to Jesus, I won't betray you. Pastor Steve preached two weeks ago, Peter's got this untamed fire. And here's what strikes me about Peter in this scene. Peter is a fisherman. He's not his generation's greatest swordsman. He's not Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. He's not Jamie Lannister from the first season of Game of Thrones. Peter is a fisherman with a sword. Why Peter the fisherman is bringing a sword to Passover dinner and a late night prayer meeting, I don't know. (laughs) But I don't think Peter the fisherman takes out his sword and says, I'm going to cut that guy's right ear off. And with the precision of a great swordsman, cuts off that guy's right ear. Look how close my ear is to my head. If you were a samurai, that would be an impressive feat. And Peter is not a samurai, he's a fisherman. I'm not sure, but I think that Peter is out there trying to kill someone. Like, actually murder this guy. He's out there hacking away with his sword, and he catches Malchus with his wild swing. Or Peter is actually aiming for Malchus's head, but Malchus is wearing a helmet, and the sword bounces off, the helmet slides off and cuts off Malchus's ear. When we talk about Peter's untamed fire, this lovable hothead's passion, let's be realistic about what we're talking about. 
Peter is trying to kill someone. Peter has spent three years walking with Jesus. He's seen Jesus heal the leper and heal the blind man. He's handed out food for the 5,000. He's seen Jesus restore a dead girl to life. And Peter has, on at least three separate occasions in the Gospel of Mark, heard Jesus predict that Jesus will go to Jerusalem, that he'll be betrayed, and that he'll be killed. And on the third day, Jesus will rise from the dead. The first time Jesus predicted his own death, Peter argued with Jesus, rebuking Jesus, and Jesus called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter. And when the moment finally arrives for Jesus' betrayal, Peter still thinks that he's the hero. He thinks that he's the hero in this story. Peter thinks he's going to save Jesus. He wants to save Jesus, even if it means killing this slave, who's potentially just forced to be there. How do we feel about Peter, the attempted murderer? Peter, who goes on to betray Jesus and deny him three more times in the next few hours. We call Judas the betrayer, and we call Peter the rock, the rock on which the church is built. And what's the difference between these two disciples? For that matter, what's the difference between Judas and Peter and all the other disciples? Earlier that evening, Jesus predicted to Peter and all the disciples that they would desert him. But Peter and the disciples say, no way. In verse 31, but Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. Fast forward a few hours later in the evening, in verse 50, all of them deserted him and fled. All of them deserted him and fled. If this were a boxing match, the ring announcer would say, in this corner, there's a mob assembled by the religious leaders coming with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus to come to put him to death. And in this corner, there's Jesus. And with Jesus is Judas the betrayer. Nope, sorry, my mistake. Judas is actually over here in this corner. There's Peter, the attempted murderer. Nope, sorry, he has run off. There's Matthew, sorry, he's run off. Simon, a deserter. Andrew, a deserter. Doubting Thomas, a deserter. These are all the guys who are supposed to stand with Jesus. And they're all gone. In this corner is Jesus, all alone. At this moment of crisis, Jesus stands alone. Well, not alone just yet. There's still a certain young man wearing a linen cloth there. Verse 51, a certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Now, Jesus is all alone. So who is this naked guy? And why is he mentioned here? We can do some Bible detective work and follow the clues. This naked guy shows up only in the Gospel of Mark, not in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, or John. So this naked guy is significant to the author Mark in a way that he isn't to the other gospel authors. They don't even mention him. So who would Mark be particularly interested in? In the book of Acts chapter 12, we found out that Mark's mother lived in Jerusalem and had a house where the disciples would regularly meet and pray. So it appears that our author Mark, as a young man, lived close to the Garden of Gethsemane. In John's gospel, John never mentions himself by name, but refers to himself obliquely as the disciple Jesus loved 
or the disciple that runs faster than Peter. So there's this tradition of obliquely referring to yourself in your own gospel narrative. And so the theory based on these clues is that the naked young man is none other than our author, Mark, himself. It's like an artist signing a painting or a Stan Lee cameo in every Marvel movie. Mark, the young man, is already in bed wearing his linen bedclothes. But he hears the disciples that night, either as they were at the Last Supper or as they go to Gethsemane. And Mark wants to follow Jesus. He follows the crowd to the garden, and then he runs away too. Every Easter, we sing the song, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a cross? Were you there when they laid him in a tomb? And the mystery of this naked man running from the scene is that it is the author Mark saying, I was there. I was there. When Judas betrayed Jesus, I was there. When Peter tried to kill the slave, I was there. When all the disciples deserted Jesus, I was there. Jesus' call was always, leave everything behind and follow me. And Mark says, I left everything behind to get away from Jesus. I left the very clothes I was wearing to abandon Jesus. I was there and I ran away in shame and cowardice like everyone else. I was there and failed Jesus, just like Judas, just like Peter, just like all the disciples. I was there. Romans 3.23 says, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember that popular old hymn from the 14th century called, Oh, poor Jesus, what have you done? A few hundred years later, in the 1500s, someone revised those words to that popular hymn. They changed the lyrics. The original lyrics, again, are this, Oh, poor Jesus, what have you done? That you betrayed your master. That's why you have to suffer in hell. You have to be Lucifer's journeyman forever. Christ, have mercy. The revised lyrics from a few hundred years later. Oh, we, poor sinners, our iniquity, in which we are conceived and born, has brought us all into such great need that we are subject to eternal death. Christ, have mercy. That last line, Christ, have mercy, feels a lot different in the revised version, doesn't it? It's no longer Christ, have mercy, have mercy on poor Judas, that bad guy over there. It's Christ, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on me. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable of two different people who go to the temple and pray. One is a Pharisee, an upstanding religious leader, and the other is a tax collector, a despised man. And the religious leader prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And the tax collector stood at a distance, couldn't even look to heaven, and he prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus commends the tax collector, the one who prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, the start of the 40-day period of Lent, a time of prayer and fasting and reflection. And like Judas and Peter, we've also walked with Jesus for a long time in this sermon series, 61 weeks and counting through the Gospel of Mark. 
We've seen Jesus heal the leper and the blind man, feed the 5,000. We've seen him walk on water and raise a dead girl to life. And now we are approaching the shadow of the cross. There's a quote by Billy Graham that a a friend said to me recently. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no better or worse real estate at the foot of the cross. There's no tears for really bad, kind of bad, kind of good. The ground is level. And we all stand on that level ground at the foot of the cross. Judas, Peter, the disciples, Mark, you and me, all those people who may have betrayed God, all those people who may have betrayed you. We all stand at the foot of the cross on level ground, on equal footing. And our only salvation is not our good deeds, our hard work, our good intentions. Our only salvation is to cry out to God, Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We all stand equally at the foot of the cross in need of a savior. And lucky for us, we have one. Christ, have mercy. Of course, there is one more person in our passage today besides Judas and Peter and Mark, and it's Jesus standing in the garden. It's chaos in the garden. An armed mob, Judas betraying, Peter seeing a sword, Malchus bleeding everywhere, a naked man running away. Chaos all around, except for Jesus. Jesus stands in the midst of that chaos, and he is calm. Let the scriptures be fulfilled, Jesus says. The scriptures have predicted that Jesus will die for our sins and that he'll be raised to life on the third day. We blame Judas and call him a betrayer. and We make him the scapegoat for the death of Jesus. And Jesus, all alone in the garden, says, you've got that all wrong. Judas isn't the scapegoat. I, Jesus, I am the scapegoat. I, Jesus, I'm the one who will carry your shame and your blame and your sin. And I do it because I love you. I choose the cross. Don't give Judas the credit for sending Jesus to the cross. Only Jesus gets credit for the cross. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus doesn't end up on the cross because Judas betrays him. Jesus doesn't end up on the cross because Peter fails to fight off the arresting crowd. Jesus doesn't end up on the cross because all his disciples desert him. Jesus ends up on the cross because he chooses the cross. He chooses the cross for us. Lord, Have mercy on me, a sinner. In Romans 5, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a book written by Ray Anderson, a seminary professor of Pastor Dan and Pastor Tim at Fuller. And in the book, Anderson imagines the conversation between Judas and Jesus. In reality, that conversation doesn't take place. Judas, after he betrays Jesus, 
It tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that Judas is full of remorse. And he goes to the chief priests and he repents and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He returns the money. And the chief priests say to Judas, what is that to us? That is your responsibility. And so Judas goes and takes his own life. And in this book written by Ray Anderson, he imagines the conversation between Judas and Jesus if it could have happened. And I have to confess, I have not read the book. Pastor Tim just told me the title. And the title of the book was enough. The title of the book is Judas, Come Home, All is Forgiven. Does that shock you? Could Judas possibly have been forgiven? What kind of God could forgive Judas, the ultimate bad guy? Is God's forgiveness really big enough for Judas, the betrayer? Is it big enough for Peter, the attempted murderer and denier of Jesus? Is it big enough for Mark and the other disciples, the deserters? Is it big enough for the prodigal son? Is it big enough for Paul, formerly called Saul, who killed and persecuted the early church? Is God's forgiveness big enough for John Newton, the slave trader, who wrote the song we sang, Amazing Grace? Is God's forgiveness big enough for you? Is it big enough for me? Is God's forgiveness big enough for all those people out there who may have betrayed you or wronged you or hurt you? Is God's forgiveness big enough for all those people out there who will never set foot in a church because they think God's forgiveness isn't big enough for them? My heart breaks for Judas. Because the difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas couldn't believe that God's forgiveness was bigger than his evil. But God's grace and forgiveness is bigger than our sin. God's grace is bigger than Peter's rashness. God's forgiveness is bigger than the disciples' desertion. God's forgiveness and grace and mercy and love is big enough for all of us who stand on the level ground at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus invites us all, come home, all is forgiven. How will we respond? Jesus invites us to this table, come home, all is forgiven. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had a Passover meal with his closest friends, the same people who would betray him and desert him later that evening. And he invited them into communion with him. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him in a few hours. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. He knew that all the disciples would desert him. But he still shared a meal with them. In the same way, Jesus invites us now into communion with him and offers us the forgiveness for our sins. At the conclusion of our service, if you'd like prayer, please come forward in front of the cross or in front of the choir risers. There'll be members of our prayer team who would be happy to pray with you. But now, receive this blessing. May the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Everyone, at some point, abandoned Jesus. We, too, have our less-than-stellar moments. 
And yet, Jesus has mercy and grace for us all. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more, call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.